Hello, everyone. It's February 6th, 2024. This week, we're going over some past lunar lander missions in the upcoming Nova Sea lunar mission. It's going to be a busy year for the moon. Also, Collins Aerospace tested its new ISS EVA suit on the Vomit Comet. So let's get into the details, all the ups and downs, and liftoff. And we've got the Tower Welcome to episode 445 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Okay, so Dennis, you got some uh, trivia for us about spaceflight, a new spaceflight record or an upcoming one? Yeah, and not shuttle-related at all. Yeah, so, not a shuttle one. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the Russian cosmonaut Oleg Konyenko, uh, as of today, as of our recording here on Sunday, February 4th, surpassed the world record for total time spent in space. So cumulative days on orbit, not continuous. And he beat uh, Gennady Padalka, previously held that record. So the trivia is, how many days in space is that? I think I'll just say it in terms of years. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. I'll, I could do the conversion. Because <laughs> I, I wasn't going to be that specific because uh, I really don't know. But I'm just going to go ahead and say, I don't know. I'm just going to say three years. Yeah. We know it's more than a year. And I was thinking, yeah, like three years because, you know, the no- the average stay at ISS or like, you know, a normal length for a long stay at ISS is what, like nine months or something is like the longest standard crew rotation. I mean, yeah, I would, I would go for about three years, maybe two and a half. Okay. Cause, cause so three years is 1,095 days. Yeah. So yeah, maybe more like, maybe more like two and a half. Cause in terms of days, I would think it's like. High 900s. So two and a half is good. I guess that's uh, 912 days. So it's in the 900s. What about you, David? I guess I'll just stay with three years. Three <laughs> years? Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, it's probably less than that, but yeah, I'll just stick with that one. So it is the equivalent. Well, so it's 878 days or 2.4 years. So Ben got really close. <laughs> I got yeah. very close. That, that's yeah. shocking. Good job. 1100 by the time he returns in September. Holy crap. So that'll be over three years, right? That'll be over three years, yeah. Well, I will have been, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we bookended it pretty good between the two of us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, off by one mission. <laughs> it looks like this is his fifth uh, mission. All still use, you know, ISS ones. Because, I mean, he, you know, he's a. He's a newer guy. His first uh, flight was in 2008. I'm curious now, what's the closest American to that record? Okay, here we go. The most time spent in space. This is Wikipedia is just the best when it comes to uh, yeah lists. Uh, lists. Yeah, we've got Oleg in first place. Gennady Padalka, who has just like the best, like the most winningest smile. Then you got Yuri Malachenko, Sergey Krikalev, fourth place. That's pretty cool. Uh, Malchenko and Krikalev flew six times each. Um, then there's Kaleri. Oh my! I'm just not. I'm going to stop naming cosmonauts until I finally get <laughs> ah, ninth, ninth place. Peggy Whitson, 675 yeah. days in space. That was but my she's guess. still active. Her and Konyenko are the only two active, so she can still uh, move up on the leaderboards. I don't know if you'd want to at that point. Like, yes, it's you know. You're in space. Oh, uh, Chubby in the chat guessed correctly as well. Like, yeah, being in space is really cool. But like as a job, working on ISS is is not the best, (laughs) not the best job. Like it's exhausting work. No. And in fact, I mean, Peggy Whitson, it sounds like she's just, you know, doing private missions with Axiom now. So she's only going to really get like, you know, a week at a time. So unless she uh, flies 
50 Axiom missions, she's probably not going to end up taking that number one spot. <laughs> I mean, you never know, but yeah, that'd be kind of cool. Or winds up going to the moon or something. Yeah. Or it winds up going to the moon. Clipses second try. Is that how you say that? Clipses? I, I, I don't know how to do the possessive for words that ended in S. Clips, second try. Yeah, you might just make a longer S sound. <laughs> yeah, clips is second try. I like clipses. That's what I'd say. So what's going on with clips, The which is the uh, with the Commercial Lunar Payload Services program, mm. just to remind anyone. Yeah, so uh, what's happening there, Dennis? Yeah, so so like I said, right, this is our this is Clips's, uh second attempt at getting to the moon, right? The idea of being these cheaper commercial payloads. And so a lot of shot on goals and not all of them going successfully. And so I guess let's start with just talking a little bit about missions to the moon over the last couple of years, because it seems like since the summer of 22, we've had uh, much more of a flurry of missions, including a lot of private yeah. ones. And so in summer 22, we had Capstone and Denuri, which is a Korea Pathfinder lunar orbiter, both successful missions. And then things got a little hairier after that. Hakuto-R, uh, the private Japanese uh, mission, uh, misunderstood what a cliff was and hit the ground too hard. Uh, Chandrayaan-3 then uh, in 23 had a... Uh, a successful landing, which was good. And then Luna 25, let's not forget the first uh, Russian mission to the moon, <laughs> I guess, ever. And the first uh, Soviet slash Russian mission since uh, the 70s or whatever. That one failed for kind of obscure un or not obscure. That's what I'm looking for. Not obscure, not obtuse. Uh, maybe obscure. Undisclosed reasons. Undisclosed <laughs> reasons. Thank you. There you go. Just tie cut through the, the knot. Um, and so that one didn't work out. And then Clips's first try was Peregrine, which unfortunately uh, wasn't able to even hard land on the moon uh, because of the rupture that we talked about just a few weeks ago. And so, uh, but Slim had a qualified success. And so that was, you know, the recent one that went face down into the lunar regolith. Yeah, kind of a mixed uh, track record. And uh, yeah, Clips is 0 for 1 right now. And I guess, you know, this second mission will be potentially the first uh, private American mission to the moon to be successful. And so uh, it's uh, specifically intuitive machines. And so this mission is called IM-1. Uh, it's also known as TO2-IM, which is task order two uh, within NASA's mm. nomenclature. But it's also known as Odysseus. So it has a nice uh, little you know, proper name as well. And so uh, Peregrine was Astrobotics mission, that company uh, from Pittsburgh. Uh, IM-1 is intuitive machines' lander. And so uh, specifically, it's the Nova C lander, and it'll be launching on a Falcon 9. This lander is very tall looking, so I'm a little worried about <laughs> IM-1, but uh, I'm sure, you know, it could work. I mean, I'm sure, fingers crossed, that'll be successful. But it, it, it does seem like a very tall lander to me when you look at this thing. Um, it's got a hexagonal well, shape, honestly, and it does have six landing legs, which is pretty good. I mean, it's, to be fair, though, like if they get down to the surface and then tip over, that's still pretty dang impressive when you know luna 25 failed in orbit right <laughs> like it wasn't it wasn't even into its landing sequence hakuto and peregrine both failed on you know during their landing like not slamming into the surface even if you wind up upside down like slim is okay <laughs> like that's still way farther in so like the fact that it's a fairly tall lander 
I feel like is so late in the sequence when that would be a problem. <laughs> it's tall, but it seems to have a pretty wide base. It doesn't seem like it's that likely to tip over. Um, plus, I'm sure it's quite a bit heavier on the bottom. No, yeah, yeah, it, it does have it does have a lot of landing legs, which I I think maybe kind of helps offset that a little bit. But um, yeah, it does it does have you know the wide base at the bottom. But yeah, that's just that's just my own like I think it's like a four to one aspect ratio. It's diameter to its mm-hmm. height. Yeah, so that's, that's yeah, I think you're right. Pretty uh, it's a pretty fine uh, spacecraft, and 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 it's not going to be landing like in the Sea of Tranquility <laughs> or one of these like very flat places it was originally targeting. Last year, NASA basically was like, "Nah, you should go to the South Pole region because that's what Artemis is all about." And so it's going to be trying to land near this uh, uh, the Malapert A crater. Uh, so plenty of opportunities for some uh, rough terrain there to see how good it can stick the landing but but yeah i think you're spot on ben where if 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 it gets to the surface and and softly lands on its side <laughs> you saw how happy we were about slim and so i think yeah. we'd be very happy with this one as well if it were able to pull that off and um it's carrying five payloads and at least one of those payloads would be happy even with a sideways landing because it does have a plume experiment so it's got a couple downward facing uh, cameras that are going to be watching um how the uh, the the, the engine's plume interacts with the surface. And it's pretty cool. It's actually got a uh, Methalox uh, engine. So I'm sure if it does soft land, that'll be a very niche uh, first where it'll be the first Methalox engine to land, soft land on the moon, which is pretty cool. I'm watching an animation and you can see that purple flame. And I was like, mm. must be Methalox. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. So um, I guess uh, the news is that it is on pace. There had been a lot of uh, back and forth between it and uh, Peregrine, uh, Astrobotics lander, again, that had the, uh, the anomaly that made it fail, uh, uh, that caused it to fail to reach uh, the, the moon. And so now, though, IM-1 is next on deck with its Novacy lander, and it's going to be launching on Falcon 9. It's uh, encapsulated in the fairing and everything. And while there's been some back and forth about like what the exact launch date is, uh, it might be a little unclear, but essentially there's a three-day window in mid-February that they've been talking about. Uh, and if they hit any of those uh, days in that window, they can land on February 22nd. And so um, hopefully later this month, we will have uh, a successful touchdown of one of these CLIPS missions. Because I'm worried if they have two failures in a row, even if they kind of you know, budget for that and they say, oh, we, you know, we want to have a lot of shots on goal. It's just not going to look good having two failures in a row. Um, so I'm a little worried about that. But there is also one kind of thing that's uh, complicating things uh, with the launch date. And this is something I didn't realize is that uh, it needs to launch from uh, uh, launch, uh, from pad 39A, right? This kind of wonderful storied pad, uh, because that's the only pad right now at the Cape. Actually, I don't want to say anything about the West Coast, but it's it's apparently is the only pad at the Cape that can support a Methalox engine that has the you know the proper tanks and uh, ground support equipment for that. It's also the only pad that can support uh, humans as well, and so <laughs> Crew Eight is in direct competition for IM One because they both kind of want to be launching later this month, and both of them want to use uh, Pad Thirty Nine A. They need to upgrade another pad, is what they need to do. Yeah, right. I say methyl. Everyone, everyone in their uh, grandma wants yeah. to do Methalox now, so yeah, I got to get all those pads <laughs> set up. <laughs> okay, well, let's translate then. Uh, let's do another topic. Uh, let's talk about Collins' recent crew capability assessment test. So this is the 
the Collins spacesuit, and the test was done on board the or a Vomit Comet. I guess I don't know if there's more than one plane, but I'm just saying that it's a NASA program. So yeah, it's probably like multiple aircraft, and uh, mm. yeah, it's the Boeing KC-135. So yeah, I guess any one of those. But yeah, so this was the next step testing the Collins suit. Um, they call it. The EMU, so I guess we should call it that, right? And not the EVA suit. I mean, it is an EVA suit, but yeah, so this is to test the suit's operations on board station. So not the lunar version that you were thinking of, Dennis, earlier we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, that one is actually, I, I think that they're both, I know that Axiom is developing both an EVA suit for station and for the lunar surface, but they're focusing on the lunar suit first. And then Collins is doing the suit for the ISS. And I don't know about the moon. I think that that's maybe somewhere on like the back burner, but it's definitely not something that they're focusing on now. So they're basically, you know, taking different parts of uh, this whole program. Mm. But just quickly on Axiom, because there was some information released a couple of days ago, just after the launch of uh, the Axiom 3 mission, I think it was, that apparently the first three training suits have been delivered to NASA. So I guess that's a little bit of progress. But also, and I think maybe we mentioned this back in November, there was a GAO report, the Government Accountability Office. There was a report on, I think it was just like Artemis 3 in general. In fact, I'm pretty sure we did talk about that. And uh, one little thing that was regarding the Axiom suit was that it did not provide minimum emergency life support for Artemis 3. So mm-hmm. that, and that that might actually delay the mission um, of course, there's a bunch of other things that might delay the mission as well, but yeah. they might have to go back and do some redesigning. So that's the state of the Axiom suit at the moment. Collins, it looks like, is maybe a little bit more on track. But yeah, so the tests that were conducted on the Vama Comet, which are, you know, these parabolic arcs uh, that the plane takes, uh, they were conducted by former astronauts John Olivas and Dan Burbank. There's a little YouTube video that uh, I found. So if anyone wants to watch, I guess we'll link that in the show notes. It's not, there's not, there's not a whole lot there. It's interesting to see, first of all, it must have been several dozen people on that plane, just a lot of people handling, you know, all kinds of equipment and so forth. So this was a pretty intensive uh, test here. (laughs) But the, so the primary goals, uh, just to go down the list here, they wanted to test the pressure garment system fit and functionality. And the pressure garment is provided by, I think it's ILC Dover. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they're the ones who provide the pressure garment uh, portion of the suit. And so they're testing that fit and functionality. So that means that they must be testing the the ability of the thing to properly pressurize and hold pressure. Um, but I'll come back to that in a second. The other goal was to, you know, use tools and test the interfaces that you might encounter on board station. So basically the astronaut is, you know, having to like touch buttons, turn things and so forth and just use, you know, the various tools that you might find if you're on an EVA or whatever on board station. Just a lot of that. I just imagine like do this test and screw in this screw or something, you know, like that mm-hmm. kind of thing. They give him a little pistol grip tool and he has to do, you know, a whole bunch of other things. There's some good photos and you can see, yeah, there's a little mock-up of what, you know, like basically a control panel with a bunch of, it's just painted on kind of a, it's just a picture. There's no actual switches, it looks like. I didn't look at it close enough. I thought that was, are you sure? Yeah, I guess that's painted on there. But what's the point in doing that? Yeah. But there's there's also a picture of uh, one of uh, one of them crawling out of a little hatch. And so being able to negotiate a hatch while, that, that's, that's really cool. Yeah, the entry and exit tasks. Yeah, so they had like a little airlock 
on board uh, the plane. And they just had to go in and out, in and out, uh, testing various, I guess, you know, like orientations to get in and out, maybe with different gear or, you know, like maybe having to bring something with them. I'm not sure, but uh, it looked pretty easy because, I mean, these suits, are they are smaller. They're smaller by volume, smaller, and, and they have a lighter mass as well. So they are newer, smaller, more flexible. I can only imagine that that wouldn't be a problem, but I guess you need to do the tests, you know, all the same. But yeah, it worked out fine. They also had to do the suit donning. I don't know about doffing, so taking it off and putting it back on, but I guess just seeing how easy it is to put on in zero G, because of course this is something that you can do on the ground. You can put the suit on, but I guess specifically how easy is this to do when there's no gravity, you know, um, which I guess might present some challenges. Isn't a parabolic flight only like... 20 some seconds or so well yeah so i'm guessing they get part of the way through then they you know hunker down for the Mm. 2g ascent and then they just like pick up where they left off but yeah i don't think you could put the whole suit on in one go that would be pretty tricky yeah (laughs) no but yeah that's a good point because i was kind of thinking that too but i can only guess that they did it in you know small sections Mm. that makes sense it was a total of 40 parabolas so and each one is it's only what? It's not even a minute. I thought, yeah, I thought it was tens of seconds. I want to say 20 seconds. Let me see. Yeah, it's about it's about 25 seconds, roughly. Mm-hmm. 25 seconds, 40 parabolas. That's not a whole lot of time, but I guess they managed to uh, get done everything that they needed to. Yeah, pretty impressive. And so, yeah, like all the tests were successfully done. Uh, they did demonstrate an increased range of motion, which is not surprising considering it was designed for that. But one question I was kind of wondering about, I couldn't find an answer to, um, was the suit pressurized like you know like above the ambient pressure because that's the environment that you would be working in the suit in and i could see that it did have you know the eva pack on but that was probably just i'm sure it wasn't functional Mm -hmm. because you could see a little hose that the astronaut had attached which i'm sure is what was providing the ventilation but that would mean to me that it seems likely at least that it wasn't pressurized it was just you know at the regular cabin pressure Mm -hmm. and so that's got to change how you move around in the suit, right? Oh, yeah. It seems like that that's something that they would have done. But, I mean, they might have. I'm not sure. Uh, couldn't find any information on if it was, you know, pressurized to whatever they pressurized suits to. Is it like 5 PSI or something? Um, 5, 6, 7, I think. Hmm. But, I mean, that's how that test should definitely be done if you're having to get in and out of little hatches and so forth and use tools. Because uh, that's going to affect that, like, in a pretty big way. But the next couple steps are the thermal vacuum test and the neutral buoyancy lab test. And then it can go on to the critical design review. So definitely getting there. Um, and I'll be interested to see uh, how those other tests go. Those look like just as much fun. <laughs> well, sorry if I missed this and you said it. Um, do, do they have a an estimate for when these ISS suits would be complete and deliverable? I believe it's towards the end of next year. Okay. So you still get half a decade of work on, st- on station before yeah. it goes. But as far as the Artemis three. Axiom suit, that's probably a little bit further out. Yeah. Not to go down another bunny hole, but uh, how long have the ISS ones been around? Did we come up with any since shuttle? Like new ones? Like, is there. Like- no, it's it's still the EMU. I mean, it's. Dang. It is what it is. The, fir- the first one was introduced in 1981. Because that's what I'm, yeah, I'm. I'm curious. Like, just, yeah, like manufactured. Like, when was the last thing they built? A new one. I thought you were talking about newly designed suits. Both. I, I, I want to know everything. <laughs> yeah, they, they haven't done a new design. I mean, it's still EMU. There have been some tweaks, but it's not enough to constitute a new spacesuit. We lost one of them in, what was it? Um, Sierra 7, I think. Was it 7? Mm. Yeah. 
And that was in a batch of three, if I remember correctly. And so I think the most recent one is uh, 3015, which went up in SPX 21. I found this line at the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force's website. Uh, the basic AMU was used on space shuttle flights from 1981 to 2002, with an improved version developed for International Space Station and shuttle use in 1998 and beyond. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like in the late 90s, they at least iterated on it to some extent. So some of them might be built from the, the 90s. I believe that's correct. Um, I think it was called the Enhanced EMU, and that's when they added Safer, if I remember correctly. was that That's what they were adding was like... I mean, in addition to other things, but like the only real stats that changed were now you can attach a safer to it. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. So yeah, the, the enhanced EMU, um, basically made the, the design modular so that you could leave them on ISS and send up replacement parts as needed rather than being guaranteed having them back on the ground after every mission. Mm. Um, and that modularization process added about 23 pounds. I mean, the, the suit increased in mass by 23 pounds. And so I think most of that was, you know, adding connectors and making different sections uh, mechanically stable within themselves so that you could pull them apart. And then I, I think they added like batteries to it as well, which probably chews up a lot of mass. Well, I could confirm, yeah, in, in, using enhanced EMU, yeah, it, it went into service in 98. And ILC Dover basically built them. Yeah, Dover and Collins. There, there's a reason that they're that they're working on this now. So let's do three short and sweets this week. Dennis, what is the first? Chao 2 readies for launch. The Lunar Relay satellite Chao 2 has arrived at its Wenchang launch site in preparation for a flight sometime in the first half of this year. Like its predecessor, which shares the same name, the spacecraft will provide communications for upcoming Chang'e landers that will target the lunar far side and south polar regions. Rather than entering an L2 orbit, Chao 2 will be in a frozen orbit of 300 by 8,600 kilometers. Authorities in China have said preparations for launch are proceeding according to plan. Next, uh, the first metal 3D printer in space has arrived at ISS. An Airbus-developed 3D metal printer has arrived at the International Space Station on the recent Cygnus cargo resupply mission. The 180-kilogram device, named 3D Metal, will use stainless steel to create parts roughly 9 by 5 centimeters in size. Fumes emitted during the printing process will be captured by an array of filters, and the printer will be located inside ESA's Columbus module installed by astronaut Andrea Mogensen. Once up and running, operators on Earth will be able to control and monitor the machine. And finally, orbital raising, raising questions. The secretive Chinese space plane that lifted off in December has raised its orbit. Its initial 348-kilometer apogee has been raised and circularized to 602 by 609 kilometers. This orbital change is very similar to a previous mission, during which the space plane released several objects after the change in orbit. However, contrary to some reports, no deployment of objects has been observed so far. The false claims are most likely due to several objects in close proximity to the space plane, namely the upper stage and four other pieces of debris. So it's actually just debris. All right. So let's move on to this week in space flight history. We have one winner and it's Ben. So congratulations, uh, Ben the host, uh, which is to say we have no winners as well. Uh, the uh, the clue was first kleptoparasite in space. And I guess that one was a really hard clue. Um, and to be honest, I don't know what the event is. I mean, I can see it right now, but I'm not 
I'm kind of in, I'm kind of intentionally not looking. So yeah, what is the first kleptoparasite in space? Okay, this week in spaceflight history is the 9th of February 2000. It was the first launch of a frigate upper stage. So let me go over the clue real quick and get a judgment uh, from David and Dennis as well as anybody in the chat who wants to weigh in. Um, so frigate is spelled F R E G A T, and frigate is also spelled F R I. G-A-T. Uh, let me make sure I spelled that right. F-R-I-G-A-T-E. You're right. There's an E at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. So um, uh, I went with that. And the first thing that jumped into my head is a fact I know about uh, a seabird called a frigate bird. A frigate bird is uh, a black uh, seabird with you know, really long soaring wings. It also has a split tail like a swallow, but they're, they're bigger than a swallow. And they're notable for two things. One is that the males have these red throat pouches that they puff up as like a mating, uh, signal. And also I think they're, um, like an aggression, uh, behavior. Uh, but they're, they're known for that, for that red neck pouch, but they're also known for the fact that they are kleptoparasites. They are lazy. And while they are perfectly capable of catching fish, they sometimes prefer to let other birds do their, uh, hunting for them. And then because they are such amazing flyers, they can chase another bird and keep them from landing uh, so long that the other bird gets exhausted and vomits up its food uh, so that it can reduce its weight and fly longer. And the frigate bird is so good at flying that it can do this and then eat the the food that it's caught midair um, and still be perfectly fine to keep flying. Uh, so kleptoparasite, uh, klepto means uh, uh, theft, right, in Greek, yeah. uh, parasite. Right, kleptoparasite. And so if you if you were to send a kleptoparasite to space, it might as well be a frigate upper stage. How 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 okay. So that obviously this is not like a very close association. And if you are not me, maybe you don't have the association uh between kleptoparasitism and frigate birds. Mm. Uh Colin's chat says it's awful. <laughs> how do you how do you guys feel? Did I win or or did I just make a clue that's so un unreasonable? Well, unless you're like a bird lover. <laughs> I don't know if anyone would get that. Um, I, I certainly didn't know any of that. Yeah. I knew what the event was, and I assumed that this was a dig at Putin or something. So I was very, very off the mark. Uh so yeah, I did not think of birds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I just I just Googled uh kleptoparasitism and the Wikipedia page. Uh, the first image on the page is a bunch of frigate birds. Mm. So I feel like if, if you would have Googled it and got to frigate bird, it wouldn't have been that hard, but. Well, given that if you, yeah, if you do literally go to the wiki on kleptoparasitism, parasitism. Yeah. The fact that frigate birds show up right there. I'll give it to you, Ben. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. So the frigate upper stage, this is definitely a workhorse. Uh, of the uh, access to space pipeline. Wikipedia says that there have been 111 launches, but in, in all that time, it's only ever failed twice. So that's a, a success rate of over 97.8% uh, 
I have to do the division <laughs> to figure out what the, the correct number is. But, you know, the, the number of launches makes you think that this is a very old uh, upper stage. And indeed it is. Uh, development started in the early 90s, like 1991 or 1992. And then the first launch uh, was in 2000. So Frigate was initially intended to extend or upgrade the Soyuz 2, uh, allowing it to deliver payload all the way up to the higher orbits and even deep space rather than, you know, being limited to LEO. Um, Frigate as an upper stage is often called uh, a space tug because Soyuz 2 can basically put it into a low Earth orbit. And then from there, Frigate can go to these other destinations. So like I said, it was originally intended uh, just for Soyuz 2, but it's also flown on four Zenits. And at one point they were planning to use it on Proton, although as far as I can tell, it never flew on a Proton. Frigate is uh, very Soviet in its in its aesthetic. Um, it is primarily six spheres, uh, very often silvery in appearance. Sometimes they're painted white. Sometimes they're covered in a, a gold insulating foil. But there are six spheres uh, arranged in a hexagon, um, so like a flat plane. The spheres are 37 and a half centimeters in diameter, and they actually intersect slightly. They they don't touch edge to edge, not tangential. They they sink into each other. Two of these spheres are full of UDMH, uh, the fuel. Two of them are filled with uh, nitrogen tetroxide, the oxidizer, and two of them are filled with avionics. One uh, of the avionics bays is pressurized. The other one isn't. And so they form, uh, oh, you know what, you know what they look like? Have you guys ever had a mochi donut? No, but I know what mochi is and I know what donuts are. So I can exactly <laughs> yeah, infer how you. Yes. Um, so a, a mochi donut is l usually lumpy so that you can like tear it apart. They are incredibly good. There is a mochi donut chain in Philly that I try to eat at every time I go. Oh, Delta V in the chats had one. They are pretty sweet. But what's amazing is that you tear it open and it feels like, God, I'm way off in the weeds here. It tears open like a Krispy Kreme donut. And then when you start chewing on it, it suddenly gets like chewy, like mochi. It's so delicious. Really, <laughs> really good. If you ever get a chance, huh. uh, definitely try one. I don't know if I can vouch for uh, any bakeries that aren't the one that I've eaten uh, in Philly, but hypnotically delicious to me. So anyway, a, a mochi donut is uh, like a string of, of lumps put together. So if you, or maybe like a, uh, like a teething toy for a baby, right? It's kind of what it looks like. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that's the, the main layout of the vehicle, but the engine, so basically it forms like a, a lumpy torus, right? Like a lumpy donut shape or a lumpy bagel shape. So that means that you can put the engine right in the middle of the thing. Mm. Um, and that, that's an interesting fact. We're going to talk more about the engine. So it also has uh, hydrazine attitude control thrusters. Um, there are four clusters. They're kind of positioned up above the, the top surface uh, of the upper stage. Um, and they kind of stick out on, on little pillars. So what's, what's really interesting, I need to get back to the engine as quick as I can because this is really weird and unusual. And I didn't realize that this was the case for Frigate. So the engine is in the middle of this ring. And if you want to do thrust vector control, normally you gimbal your engine, which means that uh, if the base of your engine is staying in one place, 
the end of the engine nozzle traces out uh, a section of a sphere, which would be really pleasing for such a lumpy, bumpy, spherical uh, (laughs) upper stage like this. However, there's not enough room inside that inner circle to be able to do that. So instead, um, it has slides. It actually, um, instead of rotating, it translates um, in a plane. So the, the end of the engine traces out like a square that's flat rather than huh. uh, a, a spherical circle or an arc. That's totally fine because it's, you know, the whole center of mass is balanced on this engine. So if you move the engine left or right in this translation motion, uh, it actually produces off uh, off-center thrust, just like uh, a gimbal would. Um, I didn't know that. I desperately, I found that out this morning, and I desperately was searching for uh, images or diagrams that show that mechanism in more detail, and I I could not find it, even though this thing has been around since uh, uh, since the turn of the millennium. That is a really really cool piece of information. I had no idea about that. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, there's a piece of equipment, uh, that was on the first three missions and then removed thereafter. Um, it was a thermal cover. They wanted to make sure that, um, that they had good thermal control, uh, in the engine. Um, and it, it turns out that the thing actually runs cold, uh, on the colder side of their expectations. So they wound up removing this, but it was uh, a thermal cover that could swing open, uh, and, and allow the engine nozzle to be heated by the sun, uh, before their burns. Um, so they could keep the thing at, you know, lower temperatures and then heat the engine up. But it turned out didn't, uh, turn out to be required. Phobos Grunt, uh, used basically a modified frigate as its propulsion element. And, uh, so Phobos Grunt did actually have that, that door, which probably makes more sense when you are, uh, not sitting right next to Earth, which is reasonably warm. Uh, there have been three variants that have flown. There are an, an additional two or three that were planned and, and not flown, but I'm only going to talk about the flown ones. Uh, so there's uh, Frigate, which is like the basic one. Then there was Frigate SB, which had um, jettisonable tanks. And Frigate SB was exclusively flown on Zenit, those, those four missions. Then there's Frigate M, which is pretty familiar these days, right? We, we, when we're reading out the upcoming, uh, spaceflight events, it's always a Frigate upper stage or a Frigate M upper stage. And the difference between the two is that Frigate M has zits, these extra lumps on four, uh, on the four propellant tanks. Um, they look, like nothing so much as Mickey Mouse ears. Um, if Mickey Mouse had spherical ears instead of uh, flat ears. And uh, so there, there are two of them on each and they just expand the size of the fuel tank. Um, and then there's also a frigate MT, which is the frigate stage that was uh, developed for Phobos Grunt and then modified to, to actually fly on Phobos Grunt. So a frigate MT is just uh, a frigate M. So it's got those lumps, but it also has um, a jettisonable tank. So I kind of feel like it would have been nice if they would have called the frigate SB, the frigate T and the frigate M has the extensions and then MT or MSB has got uh, both the jettisonable tank and the engines. Hmm. Or and the uh, extensions. 
And this ring uh, really looks like a lifesaver uh, that you would throw somebody off of uh, a ship. And it's, you know, so it's got a larger inner diameter uh, and a slightly larger outer diameter. And the frigate just kind of settles into it. Doesn't sink all the way through. It just kind of like nestles in it. It looks really comfy. So yeah, like I said, uh, frigate is one of the most reliable upper stages. Uh, 90, actually, let's, let's do the math. So oh, two if, failures. It, yeah. It's depending on two or three failures. It's 97 to 98% success rate. Yeah. So, so that's whether you include uh, a partial failure mm. um, where the vehicle still was able to complete its mission. So I think that's perfectly acceptable to lump in with the successes. So it comes up to around 98%. That's the number, the numbers I got. Great. Okay. So let's talk about those two failures. Um, one of them, uh, was the result of hydrazine for the attitude thrusters freezing inside of its line. And so the thrusters couldn't point the vehicle in the right direction. And the reason that it, it froze is because it was mounted on the same structure as one of the helium lines that they use to pressurize the fuel tanks. Really a, a poor oversight. The schematics were ambiguous. It didn't call for these lines to be mounted on the same structure, but it didn't explicitly rule it out. And so basically the helium line cooled down the support structure and the support structure cooled down the hydrazine line and the hydrazine froze. Uh, the other failure was due to bad programming. Um, they just uploaded the wrong configuration or software version. I'm not sure which. Um, and the uh, guidance computer decided that when it was time to circularize its burn, it should point in the wrong direction. Um, and it, it deorbited right away. The partial failure is actually kind of a cool recovery. So there are some valves that reduce the pressure um, in the fuel tanks. I'm not sure why. Maybe they just regulate it. Um, but the thing is that they switch to a new material for uh, a membrane inside of that. If there's a membrane, it's probably a regulator, but they, there's uh, like a, a plastic or rubber membrane. They switched to a new material um, and this new material wound up being too stiff. Uh, maybe it was a, a temperature issue in space, but it was too stiff and the valve locked open or partially open and didn't uh, didn't regulate properly. And so they wound up having too low of a pressure inside the tank. Um, and that, you know, should have resulted in a complete failure, but it was high enough pressure, uh, that the engine was able to perform its burns. Um, and like they went and figured it out and just switched back to the old material. Um, so really, uh, uh, the best case scenario for a partial failure. Like <laughs> you <laughs> learn something new about your materials that maybe you should have learned about on the ground, but it interrupts the mission, but it doesn't end the mission. Yeah. So that's, that's frigate. I feel like I could go on and on and on about the different missions that it's done. Um, in fact, the, the first mission I think has, um, some good meat to talk about. Uh, it had two Russian payloads on board. One was called the full size satellite layout and the other one was called the inflatable braking device. And I think, I think I have never heard of a Russian inflatable uh, decelerator before, and that would be fun to dig into. But there just wasn't yeah. a ton of information, so I decided to go into the history of the mm. of the vehicle up till now. But there you go. That's this week in spaceflight history. Awesome. Yeah, the frigate always fun. And let's move on to next week's clue. So the date range for next week is the thirteenth of February through the nineteenth. And Dennis, do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in nineteen ninety six. 
first failure. I guess the first time failure of something launched in 1996 or something like that. I don't know. Um, but if you know, uh, you can just give us an email at info at the orbitalmechanics.com or shoot us a toot on Mastodon in using hashtag uh, thisweeksf or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash discord for an invite to our discord server and just type slash TWSF and hand your guest directly to our Tomba. And good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right. So let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. Just two launches and one other event. So what's the first uh, event that's not a launch, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so on uh, Tuesday, February 6th, we have uh, coverage on NASA TV of the uh, Axiom Mission 3 or Axe 3 uh, hatch closing and ultimately the undocking. And so those should be covered. Uh, the time is currently TBD, but that will be the great return of uh, Mike L.A. and three astronauts uh, coming back from a private mission, which is pretty cool that we've now got uh, three of them have gone to the space station and more are planned. After that, we have a group of Starlinks. So this is a Falcon 9 Block 5 launching Starlink Group 639. That's going to be launching out of Slick 40 at the Cape on Saturday, February the 10th, sometime between 0600 hours UTC and 1031 hours UTC. Finally, on February 14th, we have the launch of Falcon 9 Block 5, and that is launching uh, the Nova Sea Lunar Lander. Um, and this is the IM-1 mission. The launch time for that is at 0557 UTC, and that's launching from Kennedy Space. Center from Launch Complex 39A. So yeah, check that one out and good luck to Nova C. All right. Those are your upcoming space flight events. Which means it's time to do the show and we'd like to thank Ron Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Chris S., Colin, Chubby, Mike, Delta V, and Moritz for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show, please tell a friend or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen. You can also visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate link. Get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com slash about, where you can skip all of that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.